Let's go to Space Blue Sky Learning, episode 104, Music and the STEM Pipeline. Today, Kevin and I meet with Lori Orth. She's a music teacher who teaches about space exploration and rockets in her music classroom. She believes the classroom is where the arts and sciences coexist to develop creative people today for the workforce of tomorrow. In 2019, Ms. Orth published space-themed music in a workbook called Rocket Recorder. Lori is passionate about starting the STEM pipelines for young people through the pathway of music, and she passionately believes that educators can collaborate to teach across the curriculum for more engaging lessons. In addition to her young students, Lori also teaches professional development for music to STEM and STEAM educators. As if that's not enough, she volunteers with the Girl Scouts of Historic Georgia, teaching her space-themed music curriculum and combining that with lessons about women in aerospace. She is also a volunteer with the Air and Space Forces Association as chapter president for the Savannah AFA. And when she's not teaching or inspiring students through music, Lori is a professional singer in her community. We are sure this interview will hit all the right notes, and we hope that you stay tuned after for our takeaway. Welcome, Lori, or thank you so much for giving us some of your afternoon today. We've had some correspondence back and forth, and I'm excited to really be able to finally talk with you because what you are doing with young children, uh, music education and space, pretty phenomenal. So let's start off by sharing a little bit with our listeners uh, who you are and how you came to integrate these two subject areas. Sure. Hi, Shine and Kevin. I'm so glad to be on your show. Um, I became a space fan while I was also teaching music education. My son went to college and he changed his college major from mechanical engineering to a new program that his university offered and it was called Commercial Space Operations. And he went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach. And I did not know what commercial space ops was and so I looked into it and I fell in love with space. I would love to say that, oh, I've always known about space, but I haven't, not like I know now. Um, so I became this space fan, um, a, aficionado. I watched lots of YouTube videos and learned a lot, went to the NASA STEM website and eventually brought that into my music education classroom. So that's, that's how it happened. And my students really loved the space aspect. They loved it too. I mean, space is cool. And I brought it in and I started my music classes with it and it stuck. And so I started composing music um, with pictures. And so it was a visual thing and then music and a little bit of a space discussion beforehand. And that's how we rolled. So cool. I mean, right. we, you know, we worked um, in different areas. I, I told you during the, the initial opening of the podcast that I'm an English teacher. I've done debate. I knew nothing about space. And so when I started working with Kevin, you know, it seemed like this weird overlap, but we found that collaborating with everybody, the space is there for everyone. So every educator can take something, every kid who has an interest in whatever it is can find a, a passion for space within it. How were you like first were you first like maybe thinking of some of the songs that were associated with space shows or you were showing pictures of like nebulas and saying, how does this inspire you to, to dream? I started by talking about SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets um, and I did it in a way to get their attention. I had some chatty middle schoolers and my, my teaching situation was different. I was teaching homeschool students. I had my own business and so I was the music teacher that the homeschool moms outsourced their music teaching needs to. 
So mm -hmm. it was not in a public school. It was not, a, it was my school. And so I could do whatever I wanted. So I need to put that out there first as to how I started doing it. But um, the Falcon 9 was how it started, reusable rockets. And I told them about how in the old days, the Saturn V rockets would launch and then fall piece by piece back into the ocean, never to be used again. <laughs> and these kids were like, oh, that is so wasteful. Yeah. And so they loved learning about the reusability of rockets. And so that's, that's how we started was with rockets. Amazing. Well, let me ask this, um, for 40 years, I probably enjoyed John Williams and the Boston Pops and um, uh, James Horner. Do you ever mention those guys or use any of their music in your um, interactions with educators or students? I have used John Williams. Um, last a couple for two summers I have taught at a Girl Scout camp in my town and they have had me to come out to talk to the Girl Scouts about um, women in aerospace and one summer I actually they asked me to do the women in aerospace and music workshop but I also got um, invited to teach their music badge and I brought in all the excerpts were space themed because I thought, why not? And so right. we did have the John Williams things. And then there's um, Gustav Holst wrote the planets. Oh yeah, yes. Mars is in, my favorite, Mars. So yeah, I, 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 showed, I played for them excerpts from Jupiter. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, there's, uh, there's so many things about space. I mean, there's lots of things about the moon. Song to the moon is an opera aria, which we listen to and, um, so yeah, I did bring in classical music. Um, one of my fundamental things to remind people when they think, why would you do music about space? I like to talk about Twinkle Twinkle Little Star because I think that's like the ultimate space themed song. Yeah. And everybody knows it. And why do you know it? Why do you still know all the words to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? Right, because from such an early age, that's what we came right. to know and love bond with our parents over that kind of you know well yeah and you you sang it yeah. yeah for the few totally out there listeners that may not know who john williams was basically any great science fiction song in a movie from the last 40 years it's probably been See, harder. I wouldn't have known. john williams uh I mean, if you think about Star Wars, the main well, thing I think about Star like Wars. all I know, and again, remember, I'm not a sciencey person, I mean, but a humanities person. And I just remember the spake Zarathustra from a humanities class that I had from 2001. Yes. Yeah. Another great movie. I, it's hard to separate really, really good movies, any movie, science fiction, science fiction, especially from their soundtrack. I can almost tell you where in a great movie you hear certain pieces of music uh, when it really moves you. So it's good. It's like a different way to connect with a piece of art, I think. But um, go ahead. Oh, um, I was lucky enough to be able to sing in the, there's one movement of the planet suite and it's Neptune and it has an offstage women's chorus. And several years ago, they did that in here in Augusta, Georgia, which is where I live. And they partnered with NASA. NASA has a, um, it's not a soundtrack, it's a video that they can project behind the orchestra members and it's all this footage from Mars and from all the different um, pictures that they've taken from the satellites and things. Um, and it goes behind this, while you're listening to the music, you see all this. And 
the people, the orchestra members, they, they're like, yeah, isn't that neat? And I'm like, oh. yeah, right. Well, so I'm imagining so many different ways. Like, and I'm wondering cool. why no one else has ever thought about this before. It seems like ingenious to me. You could be going to a planetarium, listening to the music or the kids are choosing the music to go along with the constellations that they're seeing. Um, do you find like working with a certain age group that you're able to maybe get more, are they also playing instruments? I should, should add that. So they're playing, or are they learning about music with you or do you take some to the band level where they're writing and composing? I have music for four to five-year-olds all the way through about eighth grade. And so the littler children, it's all songs. I do music and movement. Um, and I have my favorite songs that I have written that are fun to do. I have a song called Elements of Orbit. Speaking of satellites, I loved all your stuff about CubeSats. Um, one of my son's um, classes that he took was orbital mechanics. And I said, tell me what you're learning. And so he was telling me about how difficult some of the vocabulary was. And I was like, let's make a song about it. So it's a song for little children, okay? It's not college anything, but um, elements of orbit going round and round, elements of orbit get you off the ground, elements of orbit let you know your place, elements of orbit guide your ship in space. So it's very easy for the kids to learn and I get to talk about an orbit. So again, I'm not a science teacher, but we start out the class talking about what it means to orbit something else. Um, we talk about, you know, make a circular orbits. Okay, now squish it a little. And that's kind of like a, we call that an ellipt elliptical orbit. And everybody let's make an elliptical orbit. And then they, um, I have boom whackers. Are you familiar with what boom whackers are? I, I'm not. Sounds like a low cost musical instrument to be used in a classroom. It is. I should have had one with me to show you, but they're plastic tubes and they're cut to different sizes. So if you took a xylophone and you dumped all the bars off and then you just held them and, and they're like, like a handbell and you hit, each one is a different pitch, but they're plastic. So they're fairly indestructible. Um, it's a great way to have kids learn the basics of reading notes because they only can play one the younger ones, they play one note at a time. So you show them the sheet music of Elements of Orbit, they've already learned it, and then they'll be playing their note. Um, and then we put them down, we orbit to the next place, they pick up the next one, they play that note as they're looking at the music. So it is music education and basic beginner space yeah. education simultaneously. It so those are for the little kids. And then we do recorders, for um, third, fourth, fifth graders. And I wrote a whole bunch of music for recorders. And it's not, I don't want to make you think like, oh, this is a spacey sounding piece of music. It's just music that has a picture like grid fins, Falcon 9 grid fins. That was the first piece I wrote. Um, and there's a picture of grid fins. And I get to talk about those being steering mechanisms. Um, I have goal flight and we talk about the countdown. Um, I've got all sorts of different things. I've got, I wrote it back when Falcon Heavy was getting ready to do its demo flight. So there's several songs. I wrote a book. I mean, I published all this in a book and I have several songs about the Falcon Heavy demo flight and Starman. Um, so it, there's a lot of things that I bring up. And so those are um, for the recorder. And then there are some songs in there with lyrics to be sung. That's outstanding. Did, did you know that Elon Musk had to pay a fine for that uh, famous photo of the Starman with the earth behind him. Yes. Because he did not get a remote sensing license from the Department of Commerce 
uh, from Noah. In order to image the Earth, you need a license. Even the CubeSats need those, uh, right? We, so need, we need a license if we're going to image anything behind, you know, like the Earth. Uh, but yeah, I don't think it hurt him too much. I don't think no, the uh, fine. Wow, that sounds really. Nitty are you familiar with the Voyager probes that we launched in the seventies? I am. Do you know they carried golden records with sounds and images from the Earth to now? I'm hoping I don't know how you would explain to a, an alien race how to build the record player, <gasps> uh -huh. but um, there were these what 12 inch gold discs that uh, they yeah. I imagine that was a pretty creative process to determine which sounds would represent our entire planet. Uh, I, I thought that was yeah. very interesting. Um, it's amazing when you think about the things that we're doing now that we think, oh, this is just cutting edge. And it's like, no, they've been doing this since, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, it's, it's amazing, like going back to the moon and, and it seems like it's such a big deal. And it's like, we've already done it, you know, yeah. getting ready to do it again. We've, we've banqueted and hung out and spent days with um, Fred Hayes, who was Apollo 13. And uh, we had Charlie Duke and his lovely wife, Dottie, come to the school we were at and spend a couple of days. So he's my favorite because he's the most humble, gentle man. He was Capcom for Apollo 11. So when Neil and Buzz landed, he was the one talking to them. And then he walked on the moon with John Young and Apollo 16. So, you know, you always have your favorites. Uh, do you have any favorite astronauts that if you could meet anyone, it would be this person? Who, who, would, you, who would you want to meet? I would love to meet Peggy Whitson. Um, uh, U.S. record also, holder? I think she holds the record, right? For most time. I don't know if she does. I feel like somebody else might have um, beat her out of that. Um, can you see my NASA jacket? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's my Apollo 15. Um, I got that at the space conference in 2019 at Kennedy Space Center. And Al Warden was there. Oh, fantastic. Um, and he has since passed away. Yeah. And I have some videos that I got of him speaking. So, and I got his autograph. Um, so that was wonderful. I read his book. Um, I think Apollo 15 was the one, their limb was called the Falcon. And I think that's Dave Scott. And he were the ones that dropped a Falcon feather and a sledgehammer or a hammer at the same time. And they fell at the same speed because in the vacuum of space, things accelerate. That was a very famous little video that has been used many times in the class. Wasn't there an astronaut too who was playing music? I, I want to say Michelle Stott or Nicole Stott. Nicole she's Stott. the artist. Wasn't she, she, like, she was the, uh, there was the Canadian artist. that had the guitar, I think. Hadfield, I think he's the one that's most popular known, okay. popularly known for playing the guitar <laughs> up on the ISS. She was the first one to watercolor. She, yeah. she, did, she was the first painter in space was Nicole Stott. That's right. Chris Hadfield, Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield is a very, very prolific musician and he made a CD on the ISS and I heard on a podcast where he talked about it and his sound engineer on earth was like, Chris, it's so loud up there. My gosh, can't you have it in a quieter place? And so he had to go into his sleeping quarters because there's always um, things whirring and motors and it's fans a, going. Yeah, I think it's the circulation fans for one thing because... There's no convection, right? So if you didn't stir the air, when you exhaled, all that CO2 just hovers around your head. So you've got to be very thoughtful about 
uh, recycling uh, the the air. Plus, you know, if you eat a cracker, you they don't have crackers up there because all yeah, the crumbs comes. would be in your eyeballs. You, you're constantly worried about little pieces wow. of debris that might end up in your eyes. So I understand there's a lot of air filtration that, and they are concerned about like the decibel level from a you know an annoyance. You know, it's it's annoying at one level, and then you worry about you know hearing loss, which. I worry about young people in these stupid AirPods. They, I think, I feel like they're doing long-term damage, right, to their hearing at very young ages that they'll pay for after I'm long gone. But. Um, I wrote a song about life on the International Space Station called Zero Gravity Sleep, Zero G Sleep. Um, and it talks about how there's fans and motors that whir and beep. And we play boomwhackers to it and we sing it. And so it's a way to just introduce them to what life is like on the International Space Station. I so and just that. today in class, I got to tell my kids in music class, I said, space news moment. I got to tell you, Crew 6 is getting ready to go. They got scrubbed last night, but they're going to go in a couple more oh, days. Oh, yes. I remember. Yes. Do you ever get to see the rockets that have a, an inclination that's more, uh, you know, uh, more towards pointing towards England when they launch? Do you ever see them uh, out your window? I have not, I'm not, I'm in Augusta. We have had some that have come up the um, Eastern seaboard mm -hmm. and I've seen pictures of them on Facebook, like on the news channels. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's kind of hilly where I live. And so I'm around, I'm surrounded by trees. And so I would have to get up really high to be able to see, but people that are high up can see the rockets from Kennedy mm -hmm. going up the Eastern seaboard. Right. So right. From, from where I am, which is kind of amazing. I'm, I actually grew up in a little town called Mount Airy, North Carolina, uh, up in the foothills. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a, there's an app that I that there's an ISS app that you can mm -hmm. download on your phone, and it tells you when the ISS is going to pass overhead. And you can go out and image. You can see the ISS moving uh, about five miles a second across the sky. That would be one spacecraft you could really see, see there. even from where you are in Augusta. Oh yeah, we can, we can see the ISS here. Yeah. I have a scale question. Okay. So I'm thinking about when I was taking music lessons early on, you know, um, and again, not a scientist, but I've, I've read that they expect or that they've heard, or they've hypothesized that the planets are a musical scale, that the energy or that they vibrate on a musical scale. Have you heard this as well? Like you can hear no. this scale in the universe. I, I've said this to you before and I can't so, find it. I feel like maybe yeah. it's on a, like a so, wacky website. Uh, I don't know, but I'm going to look for it. So years ago, um, I got Florida Space Grant Consortium would, they had a project called Radio Joe and radio, uh, uh, Jupiter is such a big gas giant that actually emits radio waves. Well, and you can, have, like, you, can, you can make these massive, you could get these antennas and put them in this you know a big yard area certain times of the year and you could record the radio waves of jupiter and then run that through a speaker right i mean i know you wouldn't uh, hear it in space but, i get that but yeah. like something about the waves can are on a scale so um, that like yeah the planets i, I gotta the, defer to um, now, music. i gotta I defer to the music teacher i know but i'm gonna one. look it up we'll find it. i don't i don't know about the scale part of it but now i'm really intrigued i know that there are nasa ringtones that you can get for free and they have a lot of these sounds from um from deep space mm -hmm. um and i have talked about that there's some um there are programs for music classrooms for anybody but you can use them in a music classroom with older students like garage band or another one is called soundtrap where you drag and drop 
beats and you make, mm -hmm. um, you um, compose music that way. And so I've told middle schoolers, hey, you can go get the NASA ringtones to add to your sound bank if you want to put in those worrying or um, right, to get the sound of it. Whoa, 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 whatever, whatever it's like. I'm making right. that up. But, well, um, well, I have a two part question. Okay. Um, there's this um, laser interferometer. We built these two massive vacuum tunnels of lasers. Have you heard about LIGO? Um, All right. So I don't know. Imagine, Keep going. imagine this, uh, two tunnels at right angles to one another and they go three and a half miles and they shoot a laser beam back and it gets and it comes back and then they look at the interference pattern. When a gravity wave passes through the earth, it stretches one tube and contracts a little uh, the other tube. We can see the interference pattern caused by the earth changing shape when a gravity wave passes through it. NASA does a great job of sharing that visualization, but they also make sounds, right? So they've made it where you can hear the chirp or the sort of the burp or the chirp of a gravity wave passing through the earth. So I always find that interesting when NASA takes something that isn't really audible, but they find a creative way to display that information or share it that really gets the kids' attention. I found something. So I just want to share this with you. I know it's, it's out there, but I'm just saying. So it goes back to Pythagoras. And I think that you and I looked at this up one time before. So it's based on the notion that the musical scale, which is thought to be the underlying structure of the universe, was based on the idea that the scale is, of course, notes that are progressing in order. And then they broke it down into mathematical ratios with the idea that they imagined that the ratios of the planets would create these vibrations that would make up the musical scale. Plato and Kepler. So it's about the, the distances the of the planets, right? Well, it says the order is based on mathematical ratios, which produce a pleasing harmony when the yes. notes are played together. The scale can be thought of as a map of the universe with each note representing a different aspect of it. First proposed by Pythagoras. And then um, he believed that the universe made up of those vibrations could be harnessed to create that harmony. And then Plato and Kepler brought it in to play, so. Okay, I, I have a legitimate music question for you now, okay? Well, mine wasn't legit, come on. I no, think no, that's I mean, I mean I'm, building, I'm building on this thought, okay? What if it's a musical scene? So, So my question to you is somebody who, this is your craft, um, why is it in the human ear, we say that something is pleasant, or harmonious, and then something might be dissonant, or is it is it about resonance? What determines a pleasing sound in the ear, like a tone versus or versus something that's unpleasant? From from your background, how would you describe that? Especially now, remember, musically, I'm sort of a lay person. Well, I would. It's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Everybody has different opinions of what's beautiful. For instance, the music that my son listens to is very different than the music I listen to. And I, I like to give, I'll give him a hard time and I'll say, is it gonna change my heart rate, heart rate if I listen to your music? Um, and he likes things that are like really grinding and pounding. He likes that, I don't care for it. So first of all, something that's pleasing to one person may not be pleasing to another person. But if you wanna talk about things, sounds like screeching nails on a chalkboard, most people don't enjoy that. Why is that? I don't know, it's probably a, it's a, a frequency that is very stressful. Babies crying, like infants crying. Some people, they're like, whatever. Other people are just like, 
because it's a frequency that can really get to us. Um, right. So that's kind of my two cents about if we're just talking about sounds um, as opposed to types of music. No, I think you're right. The frequency part is coming up in this conversation. So I'm still kind of trying to go through it here too. Because they're talking about like black holes, each have their own frequencies and sing at those frequencies. Right. And then the sound, when they went back to the first Big Bang and they were able to like hear that sound or record that, it was in a B flat. Yeah. I, I, I wrote a song about that. Um, really? It's called, Is There Sound in Space? And it was straight out of a NASA article. Um, most of, this is, these are the, te the text. Most of space is a vacuum where sound cannot travel, um, but in between stars, clouds of gas and dust carry sound waves. There is sound in space, sound too low for us to hear, far, far away, a black hole is humming, yeah. a low B flat, 57 octaves below go. middle C. And you middle C on the piano is like the middle of the piano. Mm -hmm. um, so there is sound in space, but it's too low for us to hear. It, um, it, and I made that into a jazz ballad. Um, so it's in, it's in my book, Rocket Recorder for kids to sing, or if you wanted to invite the science teacher to be on your program or the principal to come in or your superintendent, Hey, you want to be on our concert and let them sing that jazz ballad because it's so ridiculously like what they're singing this song, but it's the, there's science to it. It's all about right. space and sound. I'm already thinking we've got to get well, our I, book I think, and then, like, uh, work with our it, music teacher it, and is middle C like uh, 540 hertz or something like that? I forgot um, the frequency, but but you said it was 50 some octaves below. 57 middle. octaves below middle C, yeah. So you mentioned jazz, what style now, and you've mentioned classical music. What are your, what styles of music do you love the most just for your own, you know, because you love music? Um, on my playlist recently, um, I have, um, Coldplay. I'm a little late to the party with them and I'm just learning and experiencing a lot of their music. Um, and I love one of their songs called Coloratura. And I, I want to talk to them. I, sh I should look it up. I'm sure I could look it up, but it's like, what is this song about? Because in musical terms, Coloratura is a, t a term that describes the female, a female operatic voice. A coloratura soprano is a high voice that can sing very fast lyrical passages, really fast. That's a coloratura soprano. So I'm like, what is this song about? Why did they call it coloratura? And I think it sounds like it's about a voyage in space. And I think I'm like, the spacecraft is called coloratura. It's this thing that goes really fast and really agile. Now I'm making this up. They might be like, right. I don't know. That, um... That woman, I think her name was Brightman. Didn't she sing Phantom of the Opera? She would be uh, that kind of voice, right? You are correct. Yes, Sarah um, Brightman, Brightman. I think, yeah. right? Sarah Bright Brightum? I know who you mean. Um, she, hit, she hit a lot of good notes there. So That kind of voice. So other things that I like to listen to, I like to listen to Kirk Franklin. I like gospel music. I like, um, who else is on my playlist? I've been listening to a lot of stuff from the 70s. I mean, it's my soundtrack of my childhood um <laughs> yeah um elton john um Who, who's the better songwriter elton john or billy joel because that's a great conversation well elton didn't write all his songs though right well he wrote them with the other guy with Bernie, they, Bernie. What, they i did, love one did music one did lyrics i love elton john's um 
all a lot of guys, people from the 70s, their music is so full of chordal harmonies and melodic structures. Nowadays, songs don't have that much melodic structure. They're, they repeat a lot, little short phrases that repeat over and over and over. Um, Elton John goes somewhere with his song, verse one, verse two, bridge, chorus, mm. tag. Um, I'm also learning how to play the ukulele. And so, of course, you can play along with YouTube videos. And I have um, gotten the Rocketman ukulele play along. And I'm like, ring. It's so much fun. And so, yeah, I love all those, those um, um, people. Little tidbit, the very first song I ever heard on the radio that I remember as a child, Crocodile Rock by Elton mm -hmm. John. Good one. That's Good a, one. A very memorable song. Yeah. I'm going to bring it back around to education for a little bit. So I know you've been doing this for a while and I know we're getting towards the end here, but I want to, I want to ask when you've worked with all these age groups, and I know you even work with teachers too, like on how to bring this into their classrooms. What's the most, I don't say difficult, but what's the hardest or the biggest struggle to teach or, or the age group, I guess, is it challenge, adults? Challenge. I guess the challenge. Yeah. yeah what's the, the best challenge? The what biggest is, challenge. What is the uh, most significant or the most frequent challenge that you face? Wow. Um, I have done a lot of work, of equal work. I've done equal work in a school setting where I'm the teacher and I come in all the time and they know me. And then I've also done programs where I teach in the summertime where I am uh, two days, they, they see me for two days or one day or something like that. And so I think the most difficult thing is establishing rapport with the students to say, this is what we're, I don't even like go into a whole lot of detail. I just start talking to them about whatever, like with the Girl Scouts or I taught at a space camp and I taught um, five to eight year olds and they were doing space camp activities in the other classrooms. And then when they came to see me, we talked about elements of orbit and we made a big solar system and we moved to the music holding our solar system um, toys, the different the, the planets, and we moved around and we sang it. And then I would talk about a Falcon 9 rocket. And um, so the difficult, it's not really difficult, but it's like, um, I wanna cover a lot of material and I just have to be like, we're doing it. There's not a big setup. Okay, we're done with that. Next, we're going to talk about United Launch Alliance. There's this company called ULA, and they have a new rocket. It's a Vulcan rocket. Can you say Vulcan? Yeah. And they say Vulcan. And I say, here is a little sample at the, I got to go to the space um, symposium. Did you guys go to the space symposium? I've been there a while, pre-COVID. I didn't go this year. Um, I got, well, last, it was last year, they had, uh, United Launch Alliance handed out little samples of aluminum. And it was aluminum shavings from the Vulcan Centaur rocket in little Ziploc baggies. And I was so enthralled. I was like, I cannot wait to take this back to my students. And so I wrote a song about rockets and um, we're going to touch the rocket. And they got to hold the little thing baggie of aluminum. And so I go off on this tangent with my students. We're going to talk about rocket manufacturing. And so I get to talk to five-year-olds about there are these places where they build rockets. And I show them pictures of this big machine that grates the aluminum. And here's some of the shavings and you guys get to pass it around. And then we sing a song about it. And then of course we have to choreograph it. Um, so they're singing about Vulcan rockets Amazing. made by ULA. So that's not hard. 
there there's a bit of a setup, but they're so you know this, you know kids can learn anything. Right. I was just gonna say it oh. sounds like the idea that yeah. all, all learning with young up, kids yeah. can be focused on either dinosaurs or space. But not only that, the content that you can teach with them can be brought to that level because they're so excited about it, number one. But I think we underestimate oftentimes what kids Mm -hmm. are capable of doing or what they might actually be interested in. You know, so it sounds like that's where you're hitting the mat too. I'll I'll tell you this though, with that question about what's the hardest, I think when I talk with adults, I, I need to tell myself, I tell myself, these are my students too. And I don't need to be intimidated by talking to adults. They are my students. However, I get a little nervous talking to teachers because I've taught STEM teachers. Like I'm, I'm not a STEM teacher. I'm a music teacher. And so to be able to talk to music educators or STEM and STEAM educators, um, it's different. They're not used to having somebody teach them a lesson that they're going to go back in their classroom and implement that involves the things that I do, the different elements that I bring into the picture because everybody is siloed and they stay in their own swim lane and I don't. (laughs) I think that's so important for educators. And when we started working together we would do some professional development as well. It's such a problem that we have, especially in this this country in general with education where everyone's kind of in their classrooms. Instead, I imagine a school where aerospace was the focus and you were writing your papers about that for conferences or you're taking a history class on the history of the astronauts and the space programs or, you know, and then working your science and math into it as well. Maybe you're reading science fiction in your language when taking music classes where you're listening to all the things that you're doing. It just seems to me like that's got to exist somewhere. I mean, I know it doesn't have to be about aerospace, but any industry allows you to incorporate almost every single content area, you know, but just for the sake of time, and I've really just, you know, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. I want to make sure that we're, we're um, getting to this liftoff Institute. I know that you're about to embark on. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we close it down today and, and what you're looking forward to doing? Sure. Um, I learned about the Liftoff Institute from a lot of my space friends as they posted pictures this past summer at Liftoff. And it's a program put on by the Texas Space Grant Consortium, and they hold it at Johnson Space Center, and they have a fairly um, in-depth application process, and you have to create a video that tells why you should be chosen, why are you a good teacher, and what will you do with the information that you get from the liftoff program? And so most teachers don't wanna go into, they wanna talk about their students and, but no, the prompt is, why are you good at what you do? So that was like, yikes. Um, So you have to do all that. Um, This particular year, this summer, um, the focus is gonna be on asteroids and planetary defense. So all I can think about is the songs that are gonna come out of that. It's a week-long program, and there's 30 teachers that are chosen from across the country, and we'll get um, lessons and lectures is not the right word, presentations from people at NASA. The scientists will come and talk to us. Last year, they had, I think Fred Hayes was there last year. Um, They bring in astronauts to talk to the teachers. They do behind-the-scenes tours. Right. I want to go to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. Oh yeah, you'll so like bad. that. 
I hope you I know, get that's to see the it. coolest job in NASA where you don't need a college degree. Those divers, they just have to be great divers. And no astronaut ever survives without the support team of divers that go down with them. Um, I just have you, have, I you studied the, have you studied the DART mission yet? That was a big deal last fall. A little bit. Part of my prep for this is I'm going to go back and read all as much as I can about all the asteroid programs. Um, so that's where we fired one yeah. uh, 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 spacecraft and crashed it intentionally mm -hmm. to redirect the orbit of a, a mini asteroid orbiting a larger asteroid. The DART mission, I think you'll find that wonderful video. Um, is this, I think this is Margaret uh, Baggio's uh, program. Yes. And yes. uh, she's a really nice lady. You're gonna really have a good time this summer. And I think um, last year they had one other music teacher at this program. And so I was inspired by that. And her, she's a friend of mine named Lisa Werner. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna apply this year. And so I will probably be um, the only music educator there, um, but that is fine. And I'll share a lesson if I am allowed to share a lesson and it'll be probably elements of orbit how to teach that and sing it and, and um, yeah, so. Well, you can always submit your lessons to the teacher liaison program uh, because they, I remember they, I've taught some lessons there at the space symposium. That would be a great opportunity for you as well. Oh yeah, each year they do allow uh, some of the liaisons to come out. Well, for just because we are over time, I want you to uh, take the last uh, question. If, you, if there are teachers out there, who are, might be reluctant to even imagine that they could teach music differently or to work with somebody in their area that they could. What advice do you have about collaborating in music in general for our teachers and parents and students? Um, I would love to say, just be courageous and do it. Reach out to, if you are a STEM teacher, reach out to your music educator colleagues. And if you're a music educator, reach out to your STEM colleagues to talk about collaborating. And I've got a whole lot of material that you can use in your classroom. Um, I wrote a book about, well, it's called Rocket Recorder and it's about, it's recorder music. A music teacher would be the one to teach that, but I would hope that they would collaborate with the STEM teachers in their building to get more from it so that the STEM teachers could possibly at the same time teach their space lessons while the students are playing that music in the music classroom. So there's so much that you can learn on YouTube. And um, if people are interested, I'm happy to talk to them. They can reach out to me and, and I can help them as they plan events um, to do that kind of STEAM learning in their schools. Great, well, we'll put those in the show notes, but is there a website you wanna share out now as well or any of, you know, promote? I know we've got the book. Maybe we can link to that in the, um, into the notes as well, but any other social media sites you wanna to plug to right now before we close? Sure, um, my website is lauriorth.com, L-A-U-R-I-E-O-R-T-H.com. And I do have a Facebook business page. It's called Lori Orth Music Teacher. And I, I take that back. My YouTube channel is Lori Orth Music Teacher and my Facebook page is Lori Orth Music Educator. I need to put those together, but I made them at different times in my life. And so they're slightly different names. Perfect. Well, we really much appreciate all this today. It, I feel like there's a way that we can work together for our students and uh, your students that we have together. So it's amazing to bring music to these young lives and get them on the path of maybe being, you know, an engineer or something in STEM. So thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, today. guys. Appreciate it.
that was really fun. I knew, um, you know, when I reached out, uh, Lori reached out from a post that I had made uh, looking for people who might be interested and to find out somebody who does music so young with these kids, right? But using this content, incredible. I mean, that's right up the, the vein about what we always talk about, starting younger and cross-curricular. Sure, fantastic. And, and she's probably one of the most engaged music people with space, um, way beyond what I was expecting her, the level that to which she... Well, right, because uh, you imagine, okay, both. we can have fun with the music, but she's actually taking them the opportunity to teach them content. Right. A lot besides music content. That's pretty right. impressive. So I'm sure we'll end up working with her in some capacity. I hope so. I'd love to, I'd love to work with her more. She's um she loves what she does. Mm -hmm. so. Awesome. so well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode, of course, and that you'll join us again next week when we interview another amazing person in space. And when we say let's, let's go, go to space. space.